Alright, hello and welcome back to Lone Ball Fritcher Boys, episode 4. So for anybody who, had, uh, anybody who had money on us not making it past 3 episodes, this one's for you. How's <laughs> 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 the week, man, Barney? You been okay? Yeah, no, alright, we had, a, had an interesting weekend. Um, pigeon in my backyard. <laughs> it, was, it was very ill. And like, my backyard's like walled in, so it couldn't really fly out. That was the problem. And I fed it and gave it some water. Um, and then on Sunday I'd had enough because it was just pooing everywhere. Was, the poo was the same color as a sporting away kit, <laughs> you know, like gray green all over the yard. So I then I managed to like squeeze past it, open the back door, and then I just sent it on its way. I don't know how it's done, how, how long it lasted. Out of sight, out of mind. And now I've just got poo and uh, porridge all over the backyard. <laughs> Not what anybody wants on a nice relaxing weekend. <laughs> you had plenty of time in your hands, of course. No football to watch. So what else are you supposed to be doing? No, I didn't really um, watch much of the internationals. Not sure about the Nations League. It's funny because England and Portugal are two teams that have done quite well out of the Nations League. Obviously, Portugal won it, which was quite big for them. And we did we get to the final? We did quite well, I remember. It's an interesting one, but I think people's opinions on whether, you know, on its validity... Are still out really, particularly at this moment with like the, the amount of fixtures everyone's got, mm. it does seem a bit silly. I think England are playing three games this uh, international break. I'm not sure how many Portugal are doing, so it's, it's never usually three. They got two now, didn't they, against um, Spain and France, which aren't too all right. I heard Pepe pulled out of the bag against Mbappe, did he? Yeah, he's 37, which I didn't realize. I thought it was like 33. I didn't realise that. So apparently, um, he had a little sprint duel with him at one point and kept up with Mbappe. So. <laughs> Madrid should never have let him go. No, neither of us watched much international football this weekend. We didn't really watch many of the England game, much of the England games either, to be fair. But yeah, it, Portugal were in action in the Nations League, as Barney said, 2 0 nils. I think it's quite an exciting time to be a Portugal international fan. I heard their, their manager saying uh, the only thing he's yet to win is the World Cup. So there's a high. I mean, what do you think? Have they got it in there? They've got a great squad. Fantastic mm. squad. And I think there's a few more players who've come to the forefront in world football in general recently, like um, João Felix seems to really be kicking on this season. Mm. And obviously Bruno Fernandes um, really like putting himself up there with his performances for Man U. I think it's just a little bit, a few questions about the defence. Obviously, Ruben Diaz and Pepe, I think, played against France. Ruben Diaz is fantastic and, Pe- and Pepe's 37 but he's still performing so I think there's every chance you know and of course Ronaldo as well it's always nice having your team <laughs> <laughs> if they can get another World Cup out of him um, they'll have a good chance I mean it's two years down the line we'll have to see how people like him and Pepe are doing at that point oh, is it two years? Two oh years. Pepe's not going to make it is he? he'll not be there <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Ronaldo maybe but Pepe <laughs> yeah. what do you think? I think they've got a lot of exciting players I mean Bernardo Silva as well. I mean, you look at those three players that they could have behind their striker. Uh, Joao Felix, Bernardo Silva and uh, Bruno Fernandes. That seems like a really exciting attacking lineup. Obviously, they could have Ronaldo up front. They could have uh, Andre Silva up front. He seems to be doing a lot better in Germany these days. They played William Carvalho and Danilo Pereira at defensive mid. I mean, those are both players who were kind of quite similar in that they were real hot prospects a few years ago and then seemed to kind of go off the boil. Obviously, Danilo's gone to PSG. I thought he looked pretty good, actually. I did watch a bit of that, uh, the game against France. I thought he looked pretty solid. But yeah, I mean, why not? They've got some great, they've got some real world-class players throughout their team. I mean, we've seen in recent World Cups with how Germany suddenly did so badly and how Spain have dropped off quite a bit. That I think there is a door open for, it's quite, it seems like quite an open field internationally. Yeah, no, definitely. So this week is going to be slightly different, obviously, as we just said. International break, no domestic fixtures. Uh, in general, this podcast is going to focus mainly on the Primera Liga. We've, it's something we've discussed before, I think. There are a lot of other people doing a lot better content about uh, Portuguese players abroad, Portuguese national team. I mean, we should probably shout out a few of them. I mean, uh, Proxima Jornada is a really good website. They do a lot of great stuff on the domestic league, but also on Portuguese players abroad. Uh, PortugueseSoccer.com, uh, Tuga Scout is another one. So yeah, there's an awful lot of stuff if you want to know more about Portuguese players playing abroad and the national team. But yeah, we're mainly going to focus on the Premier League. Obviously this week, um, no games to talk about. So we're going to do it slightly differently. We're going to go through some of the big news stories this week and of the last couple of weeks. And then we're going to do a sort of transfer window discussion because we've kind of 
alluded to um, to some of the transfers going on during the transfer window while it was open, but we haven't really gone in depth on some of the biggest stories. So, yeah, we're going to be doing that. Um, but I thought it'd be interesting to get your thoughts, Barney, after doing this for three weeks on how you've kind of found the Portuguese league in general and what if there's anything interesting you've picked up while watching a lot of the games and a lot of the coverage. There has been, man. Like, uh, I've been meaning to speak about them in the other pods, but like, I never just I never find the right moment. But the, the probably the biggest thing for me, and this is, um, I don't know how you feel about this, it's quite important for me, is, um, you know, it's the armbands the managers wear. have, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But a manager has to wear like this armband, like usually the colour of the team. And I don't know if it's to sort of, so the referee can tell who he is. I don't know if the referee doesn't know who the managers are. But um, yeah, so they've they've always got this like armband and some wear it like in a normal place. Some just have it loose around their wrist, like they can't bother with it. Um, but yeah, I just guess it's for the referee. So he knows who he's talking to. Honestly, <laughs> an armband over a, uh, a suit sleeve is never a good look. Because whenever they uh, they have to no. wear a black armband and it's meant to look quite sombre, but it just looks like they've got a gun holster attached to their arm or something ridiculous. It looks quite. Oh, yeah, I, but then also coming from that as well, there has actually been quite a few yellows and red cards shown to managers from the games I've watched. It seems to be quite a regular thing, but there doesn't also, there doesn't seem to be the suspension afterwards. I think Lito Villegal has been sent off mm. at least once, and okay. he got he was there the next game. And yeah, coaches as well getting sent off with yellow cards is quite frequent, obviously. Yeah, we've seen that a couple of times. Yeah, I mean, the refereeing, the refereeing in general has been slightly different. I think there's been a few positives, actually. You mentioned you preferred how VAR's done in the Portuguese team. I agree. I think it's done a little bit more fluidly. They seem to kind of get on with it and make decisions a bit quicker. Um, and we've seen, I picked up on it as well, watching one of the Victoria games, when they do offsides, they give you in centimetres how mm. offside it is. I've, I watched one where Ricardo Koreshma was nine centimetres offside. That was quite good. Yeah. No, I've liked that a lot. I think, um, yeah, I think the VAR has been good. Um, obviously, there's, there's fans are just starting to come back into the stadium. So I think it's the way they're doing it is sort of definitely with the fans in mind. It's mm. There's not these long pauses. There's um, decisions are made quickly. They're not like, the thing I hate about how it's done in the Premier League is when they won't flag for offside. They just let the get play run and then you get like a nice shot with like a chance. You're like, whoa, and then they call it back for VR. But here, they, the, the liners have made some good calls and they're like not afraid to put the flag up. And they usually like entrust in the refs and the linesmen to make the calls. And it's and it's then pulling back on clear and obvious errors, as it says in the rules. Um, yeah, I think it's been good. Well, it's nice to see the game still a lot more... Uh, aimed towards the fans in the stadium, which I think is something uh, we're losing in the Premier League. I mean, we've alluded to it before, but to be clear, neither me or Barney are uh, fans of English Premier League sides. So we don't follow live football in the Premier League in the same way that some people do. But I've definitely noticed in the Premier League, like you say, with the long VAR decisions, it's just the fans in the stadium are kind of disregarded, really. Whereas I suppose the difference is um, in Portugal... Perhaps because there's not so much TV money and because perhaps the TV rights are not so lucrative, um, the value of the person paying to go and watch the football in the stadium is still the main uh, value to the team. So those people are respected more in the decisions that are made. I mean, I saw a crazy, it was on the BBC Sport website, sort of crazy statistic about how of the 20 Premier League teams a couple of seasons ago, something like 19 of them could have had no fans in the stadium at any point during the whole season. And financially, financially, they still would have made a profit. Mm-hmm. So it's just insane, the kind of disparity really between the two leagues. I did like um, the first two games of the season where there was absolutely no fans in the stadium. Mm. But there were still two who managed to get in and they just seemed to walk with the team and get a little picture, you know, at the beginning of the match. <laughs> like, just two... But they're not kids or anything, like mascots. They're just two... They're usually two old blokes, you know, like, 40-year-old, 50-year-old. Oh, are they, invi- like, are they invited then? Yeah, yeah, they must have been oh. invited. Or so. so, like, they got to walk onto the picture with the team and then they just get a picture taken. Oh, we can. Um, but, yeah, I liked, I liked it. It was, like, old blokes and not just um, little kids and mascots. Uh, what, what have you... Okay, then. Well, what have you made of the standard in general? It's a really interesting league, isn't it? Because for me, I think there is a real gulf in standard between the top teams and the bottom half. I agree. It's really interesting because there hasn't been that much. There's been a few games where the football hasn't been that good. You know, it's uh, it's a bit defensive. It hasn't quite clicked 
but I still feel like they're all the teams are trying to play a particular way. There's it's the passing moves, there's the runs in behind. It's it's just not quite clicking. The part, some of the passes are a little sloppy, and it's not like it's not. It's very rarely been long ball football for me. <laughs> um, it's there has been a, a definite style to most of the teams. Obviously, this podcast was named sort of after a positive preconception we both had that you know it's it's a European league where they play more attractive football than what we play in in England, and I think that's been pretty true. Um, throughout what we've seen but yeah I do agree on the disparity in class comment that you made I think unfortunately there is that kind of comparison more with like the Scottish League where you have such a kind of huge gulf in class between the teams at the very top and the rest of the pack really I mean we've said it before but for anybody who's not aware only five teams have ever won the Portuguese top flight Benfica Sporting and Porto obviously and then the two other teams are Belenenge and Boa Vista, both of whom won it once each. Belenenge won it in 1946, I believe, and Boa Vista won it in 2001. So we're really, we really are talking about a league where there is a complete monopoly at the top by those big three. I mean, I'm not sure about you, but it kind of takes some of the excitement out of it in a way, but not really, because there are those kind of mini battles that make it exciting, right? So you kind of have the fight between... Well, now the top two, but I think in the past has been the top three. And then, of course, you have that kind of secondary layer where you've got the likes of Sporting, Braga, uh, Pretoria, Rio Ave, teams like that who are kind of competing for those Europa League places. I mean, we saw that really nice story with Rio Ave who qualified for the Europa League for the first time. So that in itself is uh, an exciting story. And then, you know, you have the relegation scrap as you do in most leagues but there is definite interest for me I think there's more than enough to make it exciting the other thing as well is well it's going to talk about transfers in a bit but this um, is the, the players and the scouting networks that almost all teams have um, and mainly focused in Brazil but there's some other South American countries and yeah the players that people bring in and, and how they can perform and develop and then eventually get sold on I think doesn't seem to be it's a rule of sort of almost 50 50, I would say perhaps, and like homegrown and foreign exports. Mm. Whereas I feel like um, in in England, it's, you know, there's, there's a large chunk of your team will be homegrown. Not, not so much in the Premier League, but a large chunk will be homegrown. Yeah, that's a big difference, really. We're seeing kind of players at the beginning of their development. Whereas in the Premier League, you're watching players who have been scouted for many years and bought, been bought over after achieving something in a league such as Portugal. But more on the transfers later. We're going to do some of the big news stories this week. And the biggest news story was that Thiago resigned as manager of Vitoria after just three games in charge. I mean, we were both really shocked by this. I mean, it wasn't even like his record was particularly bad. One win, one draw, one loss. We'd both been quite critical of uh, their performances though, hadn't we? The style of play has been a real issue, hasn't it? I can't. Wasn't it they had one shot on target last game? That's, that's where the issue clearly is. Uh, the moment you told me about I, I instantly thought it was something to do with because um, the transfer window closed as well hadn't it yeah. and I assumed it must have been something to do with the, the transfer policy and the players that Thiago would have wanted to bring in and perhaps didn't but could you could you say he wasn't backed because I mean they signed some good players I mean they kept Marcus Edwards which in itself is a good statement of intent and they signed Ricardo Karejma who's not exactly a small signing for them that's a really big signing this is perhaps where it gets in, is interesting for me because you could argue that Karejma is completely unnecessary you look at his age he's, there's no doubt he's a quality player like that he is quality but like I said a couple of pods ago he's a right winger and their best player last season was a right winger so you don't need you don't need to be bringing him in for me they're clearly begging for a striker and they haven't really they bring in for youngsters none, none of them proven I think Lyle Foster the guy from Monaco he's barely scored in his career so far and then they've got Bruno Tuarte but I don't know he didn't do that well last season yeah I think that's probably an area where they he would have been wanting. Uh, the other thing I was thinking is the midfield. Um, this is a, probably like a really, I'm a football fan with no um, journalistic experience point, but um, <laughs> it won't be the first. Am I limited? Am I limited? Yeah, exactly. Um, Thiago, this rock in midfield, like you know, a really sturdy player, and then you see the midfield that they've built, they've got there. And the players they brought in, you know, it's not him. It's not none of them are that sort of player. 
Mm. And they're much more slight, they're more ball players. They're yeah, I don't know. I just wonder if there's something there as well. Yeah, I think you make I think you make a great point there. I mean, signing Kurejima stinks of just like you can imagine how it happened, obviously, like his contract ran out at his Turkish club and he's looking at his options going thirty six years old, he's not playing at the level he was. A move back to Portugal would probably be quite nice for him and he was probably shopped around Portuguese clubs and Vittorio were the ones who said, yes, please, we'll take him. I mean, they're going to sell shirts with his name on. I mean, he's still going to be very useful on the pitch. Don't get me wrong at all. And he's looked like one of their best players. Let's make that very clear. Um, but yeah, it definitely seemed like a kind of opportunistic signing rather than what they needed. And I agree with what you said. Again, I think that the spine of that team doesn't look very strong when you're talking about the striker, uh, a solid central midfielder and a solid centre-back pairing. I think that's where they needed reinforcements more than uh, on the wings but the club came out didn't they and they've they put out quite a damage statement really well let's just say that the statement wasn't particularly supportive it wasn't the usual um thanks for everything you've done and good luck in the future it was pretty damning and we're going to read out a short part of it for you considering that all decisions made in relation to the main team had the participation and agreement of the coach and that he always had total autonomy to exercise his leadership the administration believes that such a position Still at the start of the season and a week in that the coaches attending the UEFA Pro course can only be received as a manifestation of insecurity that is incompatible with Vittoria SC. I mean, how about that for a quote? That's pretty damning. So it's obviously it's his first managerial job. Perhaps he was in this situation where he perhaps felt he couldn't speak up as much as he should have. Like they, they're saying he had complete control of the transfers, but you know it could be that the owners are coming and saying, oh, we're going to buy this player. What do you think? And he's just thought the feels he has to say yes. I don't know if that's it. I mean, it's this quote here at the end. That's the that's the big one, isn't it? A manifestation of insecurity that is incompatible with Victoria. I mean, to me, it sounds like he bottled it. Possibly. I mean, you, you do have to question the style of play that we've seen. It was not clicking at all anywhere on that pitch. And that that's a real issue. Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, some of the results and some of the performances were really poor. But I mean, three games is just way too premature I mean you'd expect him to be given even just a little bit more time to work with the players I mean this is a team that played pretty well last season good creative players in that team so you would expect them to improve with even the most basic coaching really but that's what's interesting isn't it is that he is resigned it hasn't been that they've they've forced him out he's he's taken that decision could be a good one could be a bad one he might just have a really strong idea of what he wants well we'll see what happens with him in the future but just a touch on his replacement which was announced pretty quickly i mean a lot of people were uh, speculating that bruno large would end up at vittoria the manager who was sacked by benfica at the end of last season but they went for joel henriquez somebody that neither of us knew anything about or had heard of before um, from a little bit of research it seems that he was never a player himself but uh, started managing in the amateur leagues in Portugal uh, about 15 years ago and worked his way slowly up, managing second division teams Fatima and Les Chois, uh, and even managing Premier League teams Passos de Ferreira and Santa Clara as recently as this year. An interesting choice, not a big name, um, but yeah, we'll see how it goes for him. I was listening to something the other day and they were talking about how you, the best managers in the world were more often than not, not big players. They were... Had a little bit of a career in football, but they were never real stars. And, and because of that, they have a better understanding on this because they, they know what it takes to have to work hard to get where they uh, They don't have this natural talent, you could say. Perhaps this is the situation we've got here. You've got Thiago, who was an incredible footballer, loads of natural talent. You've got this new manager coming in and who hasn't, it's never been that star. But it's clearly like knows how to manage, manage a team and hopefully you can push Grimmauld back up to where they should be because I was I was really excited at the beginning of the season but we just haven't seen it yet yeah I think that's a really great point that you make I mean perfect example Portugal's most successful manager recently Jose Mourinho not a great player himself Pep Guardiola not a great player himself Jurgen Klopp again same thing not a great player himself I remember somebody I remember hearing somebody talk about Swansea and why Michael uh, Mikhail Laudrup never quite worked at Swansea on the training ground he was 45 years old and he was the best player at Swansea and the part of the problem was that he just couldn't understand why the players couldn't do what he could do or what they wanted him to do whereas they've gone for a man here Joao Henriquez who you know was never a player and has dedicated his whole career to coaching so you imagine he'll be a very capable coach and we look forward yeah like you said and we look forward to seeing how he gets on with Vittorio because that's a team that we were both very excited to watch this season so we're hoping for the best for them 
uh, in other news. So there was no Primera Liga action, and to come clean, neither of us realised, but there was Portuguese Cup games. So this week we saw a ton of games in the Portuguese Cup. I believe it was second down to fourth division teams playing. Um, we've had a quick look afterwards. Uh, a couple of interesting games to mention. Yeah, I mean, the big one is um, Manfred being knocked out by Fontinas. So Manfred at the top of the Liga Pro, the second tier. Um, and they got knocked out by Fontinas. They're from a little island. Nice. The population is 20,000. And they, yeah, they managed to beat Manfred, which is quite a big result. So the Portuguese system works with you've got a top league then you've got Liga Pro and then below that you've got um, I think it's like eight or so sub leagues which are like of like the conference north conference south or whatever like all regional yeah yeah regional leagues it is quite an upset really because the drop off between Liga Pro and the, these um, sub league is quite something so um, and particularly for such a small a small little island so get that result is quite sad yeah I mean we one of the things I always talk about when talking about lower division football in other countries is how we are incredibly lucky. I mean, me and Barney support a team playing in the fourth division of English football who um, regularly get 5,000 fans at every game. To put that in context, um, I went to Faro where Ferenc play and I was talking to a taxi driver there and he was sort of proud Ferenc fan and he was very proudly told me how that even in the second division at that time, they sometimes got even 1,000 fans and I, I was thinking, you know, at that time, you know, we're in the fifth tier, you know, non-league football, and we're getting four or 5,000 fans at every game. So there's a huge drop-off. Uh, I do actually have experience of third division Portuguese football. One of the, I went to, uh, actually on that same holiday when I had intended to go and watch Ferenc play in the second division and try and catch Ryan Gould, I, I just stupidly didn't even bother to look about whether they were playing at home on the weekend that I was there. So they weren't playing at home. So I was just sitting in my hotel room, you know, thinking about what we're going to do that day and just googling all the closest football teams that were playing at home and I watched Olyanens uh, in the third division uh, the only thing of note that I remember about that fixture was that there were more English tourists in the fans than locals and uh, the, <laughs> the kit man looked about 75 years old I'll try and put a funny video of him on Twitter it was hilarious um, <laughs> so yeah there was some interesting cup action this week and uh, we'll keep an eye on how that goes as the Premier League teams join the action. Well, we're going to move on to the second part of the show today, which is going to be discussing the various transfer exploits of the different teams in the Premier League. Um, I think it's fair to say that it's been a pretty exciting transfer window for us to come into as our first season following Portuguese football. Well, it's also an interesting time as well for football clubs because we're in the middle of this COVID this pandemic. Well, there's not as much money, let's say. But some teams have gone about, have been really smart. Some have been, there's been like a whole range of uh, transfers, really. And also not only coming into the league, but going out as well. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest differences between the English football and Portuguese football is that we're so used to the big news in our country being who the big player coming in is going to be. Whereas it's totally different in Portugal. The big transfer news story is which who is going to be the next biggest export you know i think there's a lot of excitement around who is going to be the next 100 million pound transfer from portugal i mean we saw joao felix go for is it 120 million euros to atletico madrid last summer you know an incredible transfer fee for an incredibly gifted player and i think in portugal there's a lot of excitement about who that's going to be yeah well francesco trincao as well he can i think that deal was done midway through last season but he's gone to Barcelona at the beginning of this transfer window mm-hmm. uh, for about 27 million euros, I think. But yeah, what's interesting about that transfer is that they Braga have already had the 27 million euros come in, but then they've only spent, um, I think, seven or eight. And most of that was all on uh, Alvarez. That's a really significant transfer in this league because when you look through all the clubs and see how much they're spending on players, more often not they're free transfers as loans, but seven million is actually quite a significant fee in this league. And for someone as well who's not that proven, I feel, I think he had one game for Barcelona, he's mainly playing for Barcelona B. Um, he looked quite bright in that um, first game against Porto. Um, so it will be interesting to see if that comes off. Those transfers are what interesting in these sort of what might seem like small fees, but are actually quite significant in this league. I think Braga have gone down the same route that Benfica did when they signed Grimaldo from Barcelona. Grimaldo was playing in the Barcelona B team and Benfica took that gamble on him to fulfil his potential. And obviously he has gone on to shine and looks like a star at left-back, similar to what Alex Tellers did. So I think Abel Ruiz coming from Barcelona is a similar kind of signing. But it's a trend that we're seeing throughout all the Portuguese teams here, which is that it is a selling league. And I think it goes back to that point I was making earlier about not having the same TV money as we do in England. So selling players is very much um, 
a source of income in a business sense. I mean, that's how these teams run. That's how they pay their stadium rent. That's how they pay, pay their staff. You know, incoming fees for transfers is one of the biggest forms of income for these clubs. I had I found an incredible uh, statistic from Transfer Market. Um, I believe this is not including the 2020 summer transfer window, but there's a list here of the, as they've described it, 10 best managed clubs since 2014. Um, and this is the top 10 clubs in the world uh, based on their level of income from transfers compared to their level of expenditure. And in that top 10, three are the big three from Portugal. Number one is Benfica, and this is incredible. So since 2014, Benfica has spent £180 million on transfers and their income was £707 million, which is an incredible profit of £500 million on transfers. I mean, obviously, as I said, this summer has been very different for them and they have spent a lot of money. And I don't believe that that's included. But £520 million over five years, they're averaging a £100 million profit from transfers every year. That is pretty astounding. It's absolutely incredible. So when you brought this up, I had a look at this uh, transfer window just gone. So in the league, the Portuguese league, they spent 130 million um, on players as a whole, but they had 225 million come in. So that's profit of 95 million, if you like. Um, when you compare that to the Premier League, Premier League has spent 1.2 billion on players this this transfer window, but have only received 400 million in transfer fees. So that's a loss of 100, uh, 872 million, uh, which is astounding. That is incredible. I don't think the only thing with that, Albert, is when you look at the league as a whole, I think more often than not, it's still Benfica, Porto, Sporting, receiving these big fees. Mm. It's not that often that you see, well, maybe that's unfair, but certainly in this transfer window, there hasn't been that many departures of significance. Perhaps that's because, which we've already seen this, uh, this transfer window, those top three buying within the league and then making their profits. I've, for me, it's been, there's a real, perhaps in the quality of football, but there's a real gulf in the financial spending of these clubs. Um, mm. And you can always compare it. You know, when you think about a lower league team in um, England, like Orient, for say, it's very well they actually spend money. They're working on free transfers. They're working on loans. Absolutely. And that's what a lot of the bottom half of the table are doing here. But with um, but then you've got the top three just able to spend 10 or 20 million on a player. That's huge. Um, it's incomparable to the rest of the league. Yeah, it totally is. Um, well, let's have a look at some of the big departures this transfer window. I think the biggest transfer news this transfer window was, of course, Ruben Diaz going to Manchester City. I think around sixty-five million euros was the fee talked about. But I think we're both in agreement that he's worth every penny. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great deal for City. I think the only thing about this deal is is whether Benfica were forced into doing this because of their not making the Champions League and falling into Europa League and whether there was that they'd obviously spent a fair chunk already on players and mm. it's a good move for Ruben Diaz I think he's a nailed on star in that um, Man City team um, and is is ultimately playing in a, a more competitive league and will develop even better I mean yeah we, he was obviously always likely to leave Benfica at some point it did seem as though they were planning on keeping him for one more season um, based on the kind of late signing of Tadebo, who seemed like a bit of a last-minute centre-back signing from Barcelona on loan. Um, he was always likely to leave at some point. Now, I mean, this is a really fantastic player. He has got all of the qualities to succeed at the highest level. Physicality, leadership, incredibly solid. He's only 23 years old. He's already made 20 senior European appearances for Portugal. I mean, I think we're talking about future captain material here. Another player moving from Portugal to Manchester is... a. Uh... Alex Tellers, which happened quite late on in the window. Um, I think the fee was agreed about 18 mil, wasn't it? Eight, which is, for a player of that quality, seemed quite small, but obviously it was in the last year of his contract. Uh, yeah, I think a great move for Manu, a uh, great move for Tellers. He's going he's gonna to start like again like Diaz. I think he'll take Shaw's place and left back. I don't know what you think, but it's a bit, it's a bit sad for me because I love him as a player. Um, there was all this talk about the fact that Porto couldn't offer him the contract that he wanted like I don't know what you think but yeah I it's, it feels a little sad to me I, I feel like he could stay another season you're still gonna get in that Brazilian team probably Man you're obviously a better club I don't know it just well he was already called up to the Brazilian national team but I think it was very clear for probably the last two seasons that he was going to move on to a big European team there was talk 
last summer when uh, the Mexican central midfielder Herrera left for on a free transfer to Atletico Madrid that he might go uh, with him to Atletico. Um, I think there was rumours again this summer about that same move. Uh, obviously never happened. I mean, let's remember, I think he's 28 years old now, so this is probably his last chance at a big European move. So I understand why he took it. Um, he's been probably Port uh, the Portuguese league's best player for two years in a row from left back. I mean, that's pretty significant. 195 appearances, 26 goals, 57 assists. I mean, incredible statistics. Um, I think the deal made sense for both both parties. It seemed to drag on, and I think Porto were trying to get more money out of the deal. I mean, he only had one year left on his deal, but he's not an £18 million player. This is a £50 million left back. In the end, it was about €18 million Euros that he went for. It seems like Manchester United won the transfer battle there, but I think it makes sense for both parties. Porto get a, a relatively significant fee out of it. Alex Tellers gets his move and Manchester United get the left back. And Manchester United get a great left back. I think I'm sad out because perhaps because of the Porto's reaction afterwards and the sort of there seems to be a real lack of joined up thinking in replacing him. There's the they seem to act quite drastically and quickly after Teller's left in the transfer market, bringing in a few players. It feels like there's now a bigger gap between Benfica and Porter, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I do, I do. And it does seem like, because at the beginning of the window, I thought um, Porto were pursuing some quite sensible targets. Obviously, they got deals over the line for Mediterrami, Tony Martinez. They signed other um, Premier League players early on in the window, Carassa from Boavista. They signed Nanu from Maritimo again. So it seemed like they were doing good business. And then on the last few days of the transfer window, they just kind of seemed to go on this incredible splurge where they bought three Premier League, I'm not going to say rejects, but three sort of Premier League players who were deemed not really good enough to be playing in the Premier League. I mean, let's talk about those quickly. Uh, Marco Gruic came in at central midfield from Liverpool, a player who's never really played many games for Liverpool. I think he did actually... Um, make some appearances for Liverpool at the beginning of the season in the uh, EFL Cup, something like that, in one of the cup tournaments. A couple of Liverpool fans, he looked pretty good, maybe they should have kept him, but Liverpool were clearly looking to move him on. Actually had a move to Werder Bremen, a permanent deal fall through on deadline day, and then ended up at Porto on loan on the same day. So Malang Sarr, another one, young Chelsea player who's not made an appearance for Chelsea yet, signed on a free transfer from Nice. It looks like they're kind of testing the water with him. But the more uh, exciting transfer was Felipe Anderson from West Ham on loan. I mean, that to me is a pretty big signing. You know, West Ham put £36 million on him from Lazio, had a really promising first season when he signed and just seems to have dropped off completely for them. Yeah, no, I think that's a good bit of business for Porto. Um, for Porto, I think it works really well. He's very creative. He can play on that left thing. And in the last game, it's my teammate for Porto. They were missing creative. So I think that's a great sign for them. But I think, the, Albert, I don't know. Who's, who's going to play left back? Oh, no, Tellers has gone. Well, it's interesting because early on in the window, they signed Sanusi from Santa Clara. Um, and at the time, I wondered whether he was going to be a kind of backup left back option, you know, someone to fill in for Tellers in cup games, etc. But obviously, Alex Tellers has gone. And as far as we can see, they haven't signed a replacement left back which is surprising because you imagine they were perfectly aware that Alex Tellers was going to be moving on for quite a while and had a bit of time to sort out a replacement. But I guess he's someone who they're going to be relying on a bit more than they expected. I also wonder if they're uh, tactically they're going to mix up a bit more. I feel like they've been obviously playing Miss Murray up front by himself, but the additions of Taremi and um, Martinez, I, could they could be means more perhaps playing still up front, which I think could be interesting. I feel like... Jeremy's sort of been brought in as a late sub um, and we haven't really seen the best of him yet so that'd be interesting and then also I'd, I mentioned to you and Teller's gone over it, if they might go free at the back I don't know if that will be a thing because I think Manifa on the right um, of a four works really well from there mm. so um, yeah we'll have to see Well we have seen quite a few Portuguese teams playing three at the back uh, it seems like a formation that a lot of the players are comfortable with so possibly Porto might go down that route I think it would do perfectly well in domestic games but I'm not sure them playing three at the back in the Champions League, which they will be playing in the season, is a good idea when they come up against stronger opposition. But of course, as we've alluded to before, the big story with Porto is not who they've been signing, but who they've been getting letting go. And one of the most amazing transfer stories coming out of Portugal was, of course, Fabio Silva signing for Wolves for 40 million euros. 
I know he's very highly regarded, but he's still very much unproven. Um, that said, at a young age, at just 18, he has achieved a lot. He was Porto's youngest ever player at 17 years and 22 days. He became the club's youngest ever goal scorer in the league in October last year. Uh, and he was part of the Porto squad that won the UEFA Youth League, which is the kind of equivalent of the uh, Youth Champions League, scoring five goals and four assists in nine games. Porto, interestingly, that year were the only Portuguese team ever to win that competition. So he does seem something like of a prodigy, but 40 million euros for a player that young was very surprising. I don't think either of us saw that coming. No, I think that's just epitomises um, Porto's sort of business model. Um, they perhaps could have held on to him for a season or two. I don't know if he would even... He hadn't really started many games for them. He played eight games for them in the league last season, scoring one goal. Yeah, so I mean, if you're going to be off, if someone's offering you 40 million for that at that point, you're going to take it, aren't you? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not surprised. So the fee Wolves paid for Fabio Silva is roughly twice as much as Borussia Dortmund paid for Erling Braut Haaland. Wow, that's a good stat because he's been unreal um, since then. Yeah, I mean, he was really, he was already kind of making waves on the European stage in the Champions League group stages, right, for uh, Red Bull Salzburg. So, you know, they've put a well, lot... We've of... seen some Fabio Silva at Wolves is that um, missing a sitter against someone in the League <laughs> Cup. So, <laughs> but I think that, mate, he's... What, We're he's not going to have room. We're not going to have room. No, he's got a whole lot ahead of him. He's, um, no, I'm, I can't wait to see him do yeah. stuff at Wolves. He's obviously got a lot of talent, and he uh, and he left Wolverhampton with uh, another young Porto player, Petinia, who joined him for twenty million. Again, it's funny because that was overshadowed by the Fabio Silva fee, but twenty million for Petinia again is another huge transfer fee. Uh, he was also a member of the UEFA Youth League winning team, uh, and a player I think a lot of Porto fans were sad to see. A bit older at 20 years old, um, a bit more established, but still only eight appearances for the senior team. Again, another stat for you here. £55 million Wolves paid for those two players combined. And between them, they've got 11 Premier League appearances and one goal. Yeah, I think I think I said when these deals happened originally that so far Wolves' business through the last few seasons has been spot on. They've, mm. um, they've signed good players um, at reasonable value. So I, I'm, I, I sort of trust them on this and I, I think they're going to come off. Um, it it does seem like a lot of money. Also, particularly in this climate as well, it's it's been it's quite big fees. But I like to think that they, those two deals will come off. Yeah, I think we both hope that they do very well because they're very, very talented players, and we wish them all the best. And of course, another striker leaving from the Portuguese league to go to the Premier League was Carlos Vinicius. Although, of course, a totally different story there. A much more established player, eighteen goals last season, joint top scorer with Taremi and Pizzi. 24 goals and 13 assists in all competition. And Spurs fans will really be hoping that he can carry some of that form in, into the Premier League when he plays for them. Yeah, I think um, I think we're both a little bit surprised to see he was leaving. But it seems um, as soon as Jorge Jesus arrived at Benfica this season, he's, he knew what he was doing and what he wanted to do um, and knew what players he wanted to go. I think he's just the wrong sort of player for him. I think he's a great player. And once again, they've done good business on the fee. But yeah, it's a shame to see him leave the league, I guess. You've hit me with a few stats. I've got a couple for you as well. Here we go. He averaged a goal or assist every 77 minutes since he arrived at Benfica. Wow. Um, and of the 121 players that had 60-plus uh, open play shots across top, the top six ranked European leagues, um, he scored the most. Uh, he had the highest ratio of 27.3% out of the top six European League so that is that's quite exciting very impressive and a player that we both rate quite highly I mean I've enjoyed watching him every time he's played I mean a lot of Spurs fans will probably be wondering what they can expect from him I mean I know a lot of not a lot of English people follow the Portuguese League and he's only spent one season at Benfica um, but he's a very strong physical presence great movement he's the sort of modern target man if you will you know he's not that kind of traditional target man where he's only got one string to his bow he's very strong very physical will get stuck in will score the tap-ins will score the headers but he's also got great pace great movement and he's got a lethal finish on him and a wonderful left foot did you tell me uh, you heard that you started off a centre-back I did hear that apparently I mean this is not this is not my research I think I found this on Twitter but yeah apparently he started off as like the sixth choice centre-back at Palmeiras or something incredible like that I love that. So he's got a great scoring record in Portugal. He barely made any first-team appearances while he was in Brazil. His first experience of Portuguese football was at Real Sport Club, who were then in the second division in Portugal. He managed to score 19 goals in 37 games, 
despite Real SC getting relegated, uh, which is quite impressive, was then snapped up by Napoli, but went straight on loan to Real Ave, where he scored eight goals in 14 games. Again, a very respectable turnover. Um, never made a senior appearance for Napoli. Was on loan at Monaco, where he had a lot less success. Scored a couple of goals in the French League there, but then came back to Benfica, and in his only season at Benfica, uh, scored 18 goals. Again, as I mentioned, joint top scorer with Taremi and Pizzi. He's clearly had a lot of success in Portugal. I think Spurs fans will be hoping that Jose Mourinho and the Portuguese staff there will help him to settle in. Uh, there's other Brazilian players there. Uh, Lucas Moura and, of course, Gedson Fernandes on loan from Benfica, who he's played with, of course. They'll hopefully help him to settle in. Um, and, yeah, bags of talent. I think we're both rooting for him. I think we want him to do well. I think it's. Uh, I think he clearly wasn't wanted at Benfica, so it's a good move for him. I think um, you're almost guaranteed a Harry Kane injury at some point throughout the season, so... Um, he'll definitely come in then. So obviously Darwin uh, Nunes has come in um, and taken that starting place off Vinicius. Um, we've talked about him in previous podcasts, but a really good signing, but bad looks of it. Um, it. 21 million spent, but I think he's worth a penny considering his age. And then of course Everton as well. I think Everton's stats since he arrived as, you know, they've completed the most dribbles in game week one. I think um, a, a really exciting player from Brazil. Yeah, and I think a player a lot of people thought was going to come over from Brazil sooner maybe to play with one of the big European teams. Uh, obviously, George Jesus knows him from his time as Flamengo manager. Um, he also brought in Waldschmidt, of course, another attacking player from Freiburg. So they're not afraid to dip into the international transfer market as well. I mean, I feel like we've we've talked about the Porto and Benfica quite a lot last few um, podcasts. I think partly because of our familiarity with the players they brought in, um, being big names and sort of uh, you're aware from the other European leagues. But I think um, the first game of the season for me when I was doing tons of research trying to get into this podcast and spending like hours looking at um, players I had no idea of, um, Boa Vista was the team that was most interesting. I think when I, game week one, I think their first 11 was completely different for all but one player from the, how they ended last season. They've obviously been bought by Gerard Lopez, um, the owner of Lille. He'd, he'd had an interest in the Portuguese league for some time. He'd, I think he failed by uh, Gil Vincente. Last season, he had a little partnership with Belenens where there was Lille loaning players to them, which has now, of course, stopped since he's um, purchased Bur Vista. There's clearly this ambition for top five with this purchase from Gerard Lopez. Um, he'll obviously want European football, so... Not only can they have Lille producing these fantastic players because they've they've sold people for, I think, how did Osh, how much did Oshian go to Napoli for at 70 mil? He wants to sort of copy that model in the Portuguese league, which is renowned for being able to sell on players with profit. The big transfer at the start of the season was uh, Reggie Cannon, which came in quite early. Um, 2.25 million from FC Dallas. And I always already talked about how um, Albert Rios for 7 mil was quite a significant transfer. Um, this is Burvis's record fee for a player. Um, no. A young 22-year-old right back. But though he's got experience, he's got 11 caps to the USA. And obviously he was born to replace the departing Carrasco who went to Porto, who had a really good record for Burvis last season. I think stats-wise, he seems to be more of a defensive right back rather than an attacking one uh, like Carrasco. But then I think that's going to work quite well with the arrival of um, Albert Ellis as well from Houston Dynamo. A very attacking winger, um, can sometimes play through the middle, but... Um, from what I've seen, he, he's great at getting on the end of crosses, um, can get in the box, get ahead, get a body, whatever. Had the great stats at Houston Dynamo. Um, he had 35 goals, 28 assists in 100 games for them, which is sort of what Burvis need, I think. Um, and I think that partnership on the right-hand side, if, that, if that's what they decide to do, could work really well. Well, you're talking about two permanent transfers there, but I think it's fair to say that permanent transfers, despite the ambition the owners are, are showing, um, permanent transfers are still the minority and I mean talk me through this Barney because they've signed as far as I can see 11 players on loan this season I mean that's incredible yeah I think uh, a lot of them are loaned to buy I think there's uh, I think throughout the whole of world football at the moment that seems to be the the, the way to transfer at the moment with uh, the financial situations I think there's some great signings in there um, most of them young uh, Musa Girard from Bologna has just come in a uh, sort of a winger from Gambian winger, um, he's got great level, uh, great stats at youth level. Benouche, the Honduran striker, I think he's on loan to buy. He's had to come in for the injured and G, and it's looked good. 
And then, yeah, like uh, the young centre-back, Alejandro Gomez, who I've slated so far this season. But <laughs> once again, 18 years of age, is capped at youth level for Mexico. So who knows of him? Smart business, I think. If you look at the average age for the players going out and the average age for the players going in, it's drastically different. And a much younger crop of players coming through. It's going to be really interesting. I don't think they're going to get it together for this season from what we've seen so far. I don't know what you think about that. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's, this is more of a project. I mean, obviously, when you sign so many new players, it takes time for the team to gel. But there are a couple of, you know, they've brought in some experienced players too. We've got Adel Rami, who came in on a free transfer a centre-back, and Javi Garcia, who's played for Man City. So there is some experience there. Um, we'll just have to see how the team gels because there's so many new faces. Uh, it will probably take a while for that team to get in sync with each other. Yeah, but I think what I like is um, they're doing it on their own. They're not um, quite a lot of the other clubs and around their area of the table have been going loan signings from within the league, say from Porto's B team or Benfica's B team. So no, I think it's uh, I think it's good business from Bovista. Yeah, I think they definitely had the most exciting transfer window to follow as a neutral. Um, it kind of brings me on to a point we were talking about earlier. Um, it's nice to see a team on Boa Vista's level having an ambitious transfer window, but it's not something we've seen really from most of the other teams. I mean, when we prepare for these podcasts, we do try and include as many of the lower teams as we can. You know, we want to discuss everybody and we want to tell everybody's story, but we're kind of struggling to find the stories really in pretty much all of the other team signings. It seems to be very much a case of a free agent here or there from another mid-table Portuguese team, maybe a loan from... Bonfica or Porto or alone from a Spanish club you know we touched on this earlier but there isn't that transfer influence for any of the other teams really particularly this transfer window as well um, it's harder it's been harder for these teams to spend any money at all to be honest the, I think the things of note for the other teams have been these Brazilian signings that you see popping up here and there um, some have made uh, good impressions already um, very ages some very young some sort of slightly more experienced yeah particularly in defense you look at um marcelo Holmes at uh, maritimo the left back who's come in i thought he performed uh, really well last game claudia wink as well on the other side for them there's been a few center backs for me that have caught my eye pedral for cedar national who's coming from palmeiras on loan he's a good and then uh, they've also got jao victor uh, the winger. This is, seems to be a, a consistent pattern within the whole of this league is these um, Brazilians from the Brazilian league, the second tier in Brazil as well, sort of coming out of nowhere really and um, putting in decent performances. Yeah, and of course with that obvious link between the languages, Portugal is a great route into Europe for a lot of those players playing in Brazil who perhaps have not been picked up by one of the big European clubs uh, as a teenager or as a, as a prospect. And it gives them the opportunity to move into Europe attract the attention of other European clubs while still being able to easily adapt to their new life in a new country. I think uh, Sporting had a sort of, towards the end of the transfer window, had a few more signings go to the loan. Quite interesting. João Mario, obviously, returning um, on loan for Inter. I think he's going to be really big for them in the in midfield. A, f- a fantastic signing, which uh, I was quite impressed they managed to pull off. The other one as well that's been really interesting this is Bruno Tabata. And I think we knew that was going to happen for a little while. It got confirmed um, last week, I think. So he managed to get on um, in the last game they played. They've paid, so far, Sporting have only paid 500000 for Bruno Tabata. And that's gotten 10% of the player, as it were. Um, they were obliged to pay $4.5 million more if Tabata played a certain amount of European games, which, of course, they got knocked out of. So he's not able to do that. How- so now they're in this situation where there's basically two options for them um they can either pay another two million in january and that will get them 15 percent more of tabata and then 3.5 million at the end of the season and that will get them 25 percent more so 50 percent in total the other thing that could happen is port menendez could accept a 10 million euro offer for him and sporting would just have to accept the whatever percentage they owned of him so it's it's really interesting I, i've never really seen that transfer before where sort of He's playing for Sporting, but they only own 10% of it. I mean, this is a really bizarre situation, something that we're really not used to with English transfers. I mean, you kind of, I remember a few years ago when co-ownership was quite popular in Italy. You heard about Italian players being co-owned between, you know, Juventus and lower league teams where the player would stay for a few years to develop. But 
we've seen it with a couple of players and yeah this situation is just incredible they own 10% of him I mean he, it's not like he plays 10% of their games he plays every game for them I assume that's a financial thing right so if they were to sell him on then Porto Menendez would still own 90% of the player and get 90% of the fee yeah yeah it's just absolutely uh, it's absolutely bizarre particularly when he was uh, came on against Porto Menendez the other day as well it just it, yeah it's very weird but apart from that, I think Sporting have done quite well. I think um, they've strengthened at the back with Fidel um, from Rabetas, which is a good sign for me. They've also got Antunes, um, Portuguese left up uh, from Getafe on a free, which uh, I, I recognised the name and I, when, I, when I saw him, I, I remembered him. He's a, a decent player, obviously a bit older. And then uh, Pedro Goncalves from, from Mexicao as well is a good signing. Yeah, I think, I think they've done all right. Once again, it's that question of whether they can catch up with Porto perhaps and see if they can push for second space. Yeah, I think it was a pretty sensible window from Sporting, given that they won't have any European football this year. Uh, two good signings in Pedro Gonçalves and, of course, João Mario the Marquis signing coming back home. We'll see what happens with Bruno Tabata. But yeah, they look like they're, they're playing the slow game, really, slowly building up their squad depth and slowly building up the quality that they have. Right, well, looking towards next week, obviously we'll have Premier League in action back. And it's this time that we usually have a little bit of a discussion and debate about what we should recommend as game of the week to pick out. But I think next week's choice is going to be a pretty much a no-brainer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's no excuse not to watch it, really. Uh, Saturday night, 8.30, Sporting versus Porto. Um, like we just said, um, Sporting hopefully closing the gap in Porto this season, perhaps getting the second spot. Um, Porto coming off the back of that uh, loss to Maritimo, uh, the loss of Alex Tellers. Um, yeah, it's going to be a good game, I think. Well, you say no excuse not to watch it. My excuse is it's our mum's birthday on that Saturday, so I have to double check <laughs> she wants to sit down to watch Sporting versus Porto with her birthday. <laughs> uh, maybe not. We'll see. But yeah, for well, anyone... once again, it's on the it's on the free sports app, which is free and has been really good for watching games. Uh, they usually show the top three uh, Benfica, Sporting, and Porto games. Um, I mean, yeah, we're not sponsored. I'd love to be sponsored by them, but they're not sponsored. We're just uh, yeah, it's it's just a, a really easy way to watch it. If you're listening and you're looking for a sponsorship deal, get in contact. The email is longballfootball at gmail.com. That's not just for sponsorship. That's for anybody who wants to get in contact. You can also contact us. We're on Twitter at longballfootball where we kind of, we're sharing interesting stories and good goals and highlights and stuff over there. So you can follow us if you want to catch any of the uh, big moments in the Primera Liga. But yeah, that's all from us this week. A different kind of episode. We'll be back next week with the Primera Liga roundup and ugh, fantasy football yet again. <laughs> <laughs> but for now yeah um we'll catch you next week i'll see you next week bye yeah see you next week